my sister, singer-songwriter Julia Fordham, is in London doing press and rehearsing for her UK autumn, or as Americans say, fall, woman-to-woman tour, with two other superb British singer-songwriters, Beverly Craven and Judy Zook. I mention this for two reasons. Firstly, because today was the first day of me being on carpool duty while she's away and driving three 12-year-olds 40 minutes each way, trapped in a car with my charges, who insisted we listen to morning radio hip-hop music. Frankly, I am a broken woman after the loudness and inaneness of it. Secondly, it's a magnificent miracle that Julia, Bev and Judy have been able to enjoy such long and acclaimed careers in music. There's gold in this week's episode of The Chat with Claire Fordham for anyone who loves music. And who doesn't love music, apart from me in the car this morning? Listen to music executive Nick Gatfield talking about the golden era of music and what you need to do and know if you want to be a musical artist today. Put the kettle on, Tiago. We simply must applaud them. The Chat Podcast with Claire Fordham. Thank you for chatting with me today, Nick Gatfield. You're very welcome, Thank Claire you. Fordham. Thank you. Here we are in cold, crisp, but bright London. It's true to say that you are an international executive because you've worked and lived in America and here. So I'd like later to talk about the both sides of the Atlantic. Sure. But I want to start at the beginning. I want to go chronologically and start off with the Dexys Midnight Runners. Now, just to be clear, there have been many members of Dexys Midnight Runners. Yeah, it's not an exclusive group by any stretch of the imagination. About 3,000 ex-Dexys looking <laughs> around in various guises. In fact, there's probably about four touring versions of it now. But you were for f- three or four years. Three you years. Took... Happy, so... happy years? Well, that, well, the funny thing is, it was... Uh, so I was at music college at the time, and I supplemented my very, well, zero income, actually, <laughs> by doing sessions. Well, I was do, uh, but doing, I mean, clarinet, funnily enough, okay. mostly for kids' TV shows. But also to supplement my zero income as well, I was selling shirts door to door, which is a real character building job because literally it was cold calling with a bag yeah. of shirts, which nobody really Doors wanted. slammed in your face. Yeah, exactly. But I had a, my cunning plan at the time was that I'd go to all the record companies and all the music agents, which were largely based at that time in London in the West End around Soho area, and I had a cassette. Remember those listeners? Yes. I had a cassette of my band's demos, and I used to go around and try and flog shirts to A&R people. And, uh, ben and, Sherman's? Ben, you no, know, yeah, I mean, these were really dodgy. I mean, I'm amazed anybody actually bought them, which wasn't really down to my sales expertise. It was more down to the fact they were trying to be flash gits in front of their staff. <laughs> but yeah, I'll take five of those. And, and the cassette would then magically drop out of the bag and go, oh, and that happens to be my band. That was my cunning plan, which which sort of didn't work at all, actually. Um, and then one night, so I remember this so well, because I was thoroughly miserable. I was sitting in a cafe in Soho, and I was having a, a, a sort of final cup of tea, and it was pissing me off. A final cup of tea before you killed yourself? <laughs> a final cup of tea before I just discarded a bag full of shirts and thought, fuck this. And anyway, so I sit there and I thought, okay, you know, pissing down with the rain. I remember I had a hole in my shoe as well, so it was just a miserable... <laughs> but, yeah, it was really grim. It really grim. And there was a light on. It was one of this, you know, something like a Dickens story. There's a light in the distance glimmering. And I thought, I know, I'll just go and try that office. And actually that office was the office of an agent called Derek Block, who at the time was quite a big music agent. And um, little did I know there was a book in the headquarters of this 
fashion company we laughingly called ourselves which was called the soft touch book basically people who had always bought and number one in the soft touch book worked at Derek Block so anyway I went along to Derek Block actually not knowing at the time and I met a guy called Rob Hallett who is now a very big music agent and became chairman of AG and da 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 he's now he's got his own business and he was a relatively young agent at that time and he was being a flash git and I can say this because he knows this story and he's going yeah I have five of those three of those and then he went I he said I know you I you're in a band aren't you and uh, I said yeah that's right he said how's it going I said well I'm just sending a shirt out of a bag brilliantly <laughs> and uh, he went oh, I said well yeah you play sax don't you which frankly I didn't really that much at the time I went yeah of course yeah he said well do you want to do a session I've got a band who, you know, they're just doing a session for BBC down at Maida Bell Studios where the BBC used to do all their sessions. So I slept down. I had no idea who it was at the time. And it's Dexy's Midnight Runners. And, Great uh, name, by the way. Yeah. Very good name. Um, I obviously knew them from the history, but they they kind of been on a sort of hiatus. So they had a big hit and then they went all bit, went a bit quiet and pear-shaped for a while. Anyway, I went to do a session for them, left, fine. And then I got called back again, I don't know, four or five weeks later to do another session. And in that process, uh, Kevin Rowland, sort of who was the leader of the band, basically legend. sacked legends, basically sacked the entire band pretty much. And I was thinking, well, I'm not in it. I'm just a bloke with a you know sexy sells shirts door to door. But they asked me to be in the band at that point. So I thought, sod this, yes. So I dropped out of college, discarded the bag of shirts, and became a full time Dexys. So did you? You had no money, but did you go and get a saxophone? Oh no, I had a sax. I had you know because I I was a music student as well. I was at I was at the uh, University of Surrey at the time as well. Um, <laughs> very loosely, I should say. I kind of drove there and drove out again. I don't think I actually attended any lectures. Um, so yes, but I had a you know I had clarinets and I had in fact my first sax I borrowed mostly. I don't think yeah. I ever gave it back actually. So yeah, just enough, enough <laughs> just enough to cobble together you know the tools right. of my trade. Can uh, I can I just interrupt? You then just say some already so i didn't know that about how you got involved in mm. the band but already your brain is saying yes now this is a key to success is a lot of people would have said actually no i don't play very well but you went yes now that i think has held you in good stead throughout all of your career well it's just bullshitting basically yeah. just just that well i mean i also think that's that's a, that's the beauty of youth isn't it you just think oh sod it yeah i can Stumbled up I don't together, agree. Together. I think there are some people who'd be full of fear and would just say, "Oh no, no, I'm not." I, but you did it, and you went on. So I do have to ask you. I think it's a, a in the national interest, international interest. <laughs> is Kevin Rowland as Larry in the drinking and fighting department as he is portrayed? Well, um, see, he wasn't in the drinking department. He was quite sort of. He was quite a notorious um, hard ass. I think. Yeah. I mean, when I first met him, I think he'd just been. He's either discharged or he's on a suspended sentence. He attacked somebody with an iron scaffolding bar, which I thought was, you know, who obviously deserved attacking, but not necessarily with an iron scaffolding bar. I mean, the funny thing is, I mean, people ask me this question and I said, you know, and we, and we had a great time. So I was in the band for three years mm. and the first year was, in, was in, first year and a half was incredible because it was literally, I joined about maybe three, four months before Come On In came out. And then, of course, that thing just exploded oh, One of the greatest songs ever. Brilliant song. Still played at parties. And, and the, the journey of that, because this is before Tinternet, of course, <laughs> took a long time to spread around the world. So it was number one in the UK in uh, the summer of 82. And it took a year to, to achieve the same thing in the US. So there's a whole, so it just slowly kind of grew into this, this big thing. And it was great. And it was really exciting. <laughs> Oh,
also had a mentality. It was a bit sort of the sort of James Brown versus Van Morrison mentality. Right. That the band have got to be on it, mm. or else you know you'll you'd be on the receiving end of some sharp words and a, or a bit slap, of scaffolding. Or a bit of scaffolding bar. You know, I mean, he was always he was always fine with me. But I think you know then we went through that that very tricky period where you have all this incredible success for a record which probably cost, I don't know, three and six to make, literally right. nothing, and then went into uh, multiple studios and made the follow-up, which is a great record, as it took, I think it's a great record, but it went through so many iterations, it was scrapped, it was remade, scrapped again, remade, I mean, spent an absolute fortune, and there was loads of issues going on at the time of the band, and I was must have been at the, towards the end of it, I was going... I don't really want to stay in this anymore. Mm. And then the poacher turned gamekeeper. Yes. And you went. Was that an accidental thing? Or did you think, no, I want to be... No, it's totally... Well, it wasn't... It was was accidental. My girlfriend at the time uh, worked at EMI Records. And her boss was the then head of A&R. This guy called David Munns. And I'd met him socially many times. You're still mates with him, aren't you? Yeah, I still know. And... uh, And... um, I, I was moaning to him as I, as you do about oh this new record's driving me mad and we've scrapped it and started again I was sick of it and the idea of going on tour I was just driving me mad he said well you know come be an A&R guy and I was like never I'd never do that because that was the ultimate sellout they're all yeah. wankers uh, musicians don't do that sort of thing and then when I finally left Exes which is a moment of it was like breaking up from a relationship you picked up the phone and I finally quit the band and it was a huge sense of relief until I realised that I literally had 12 quid in the bank that was it I thought, that's a lot of money then <laughs> well I thought well that'll get me past that was a couple of months so that'll be fine um, but I just had this slight panic I thought oh fuck okay right so I'll call up that bloke at EMI which I did literally probably the next call and I said you remember that A&R thing you were talking about it's, uh, I said look if, if, if I can be called an in-house producer yeah I'll be up for that he went oh fine I'll start Monday it was literally for a high salary no well for that time well it, it, high enough but um, and the company car, which trust me was a was a huge bonus at the time. But so, uh, is it true to say? And what year was that? Nineteen. As eighty five. Is it true to say that in your years as an executive, and let's just remind everyone, I will have said this at the beginning, you have been the chairman and CEO of Sony. You've been presidents of Universal, yeah. Island, Polydor. EMI, so you yeah. rose to the very top. Were those the glory years of the music industry? No, I think, well, the reality is the glory years. I mean, I think in terms of when it was fun and, uh, I mean, not unless you you associate fun necessarily with glory, but I think the golden years of the business were clearly the late 80s throughout the 90s. Okay, so you were there then? I was always there then. I wasn't necessarily in the most senior positions. No, no, but you were, that's when there were budgets. When the artists were paid, yeah, well, isn't that true? They were well, real, yes, real I mean, money and deals. Oh, yeah, that's when a hit was properly big. I mean, you were well, you know, you had that fantastic moment where you had really, the CD was really just at its birth in the in the mid eighties. So, you had that incredible boom where people were just sort of you know discarding vinyl, shockingly enough, and re- rebuying their catalogue on CD format, and there was just money to print. I mean, it was license to print money. Money was flowing back into the business. And it was used to invest in in A and R, which is signing new talent and developing new talent. And I mean, I love saying when with our budgets, I had no idea. We just spent money that we thought was appropriate. No one was saying to you, "Oh, hang on a minute, Nick." It, it was Rain pretty it in, mate. No, I mean, you know, there was a case of cursory. Well, yeah, it was just literally whatever forecast you put into the business because of the CD boom, you beat it. 
And you know, unless you actually completely lost your mind, I mean, you couldn't spend that much money. In How much would you, would let's, let's first of all let's think of an artist. Who was your first big signing? First big signing phone was Climby Fisher. No way. Yes, way. Our yes. mate Simon Climby yes. and Rob Fisher. That, that's right. Well, he's, in fact, I mean, I kind of stumbled in that. So Rob was actually sort of signed to EMI at the time, anyway, through this this band Naked Eyes, and then I met Simon, uh, who Rob had teamed up with, and we decided to do the deal. I mean, that's actually pretty soon after I joined EMI. And they had a big hit, didn't they? They had a big hit. Yeah, we had a few stiffs to begin with. Then had a big hit with a song called Rise to the Occasion. And then an even much, much bigger hit called Love Changes Everything. Yeah. And uh, love changes, changes everything. That's why I'm not saying Yeah, that's not recording anybody. That was actually Claire. Yeah. Version of it. But yeah, so it's it was uh, it was I'm still very good friends with Simon. Yeah, that's a wonderful which is, thing. Which is a remarkable yeah. thing because most people record company go that wanker who actually I had a hit never calls me now. And you maintained your friendship. That's great. And then you have, um, if I may remind you, Radiohead, Amy Winehouse, Blur. Mm. We're talking massive, massive names. Yes, well, you know, I always say that the, the, the thing about the business, and you, you, ha- you must never forget it's a business. I mean, we, we kind of did. When I started, it wasn't. It was a sort of, it, it, particularly with EMI, it was almost like a, in fact, the chairman of EMI at the time when I started was a guy called Baskin Menon. Good name. Who is famous for making the case saying, you know, gentlemen, we, we must be aware of making a profit, but not a filthy great big profit. <laughs> so there was almost an idea that, that you know, EMI, there was a preservation of the arts component and that completely went out the window in sort of the end of the 90s it was just like make as much money and you know it became you know consolidating the business you've got companies like Vivendi owning Universal and Sony core owning Sony obviously but back in those days um, there was an element that you know as much as you've got to have commercial interest and you've got to be aware where the market is there's also an element like finding stuff that's important did you feel that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I mean, I you know, I, I, I listen. My A and R, my A and R plan was to find stuff that I like, and then right. I hope other people. And will do like you it feel too. that your experience being a musician held you in good stead, and did it garner make you uh, more respected by the artists you work with? Because there's a lot of suits in that business, yeah. or there was who didn't know anything about music. Is that true to say? Yes, I've, no, it, it's definitely true to say because I think it's. I mean, not that. Uh, you know, I'm I'm always in awe of, you know, some of the brilliance. I mean, you look at Radiohead and on a, on a level of creativity and, and, and innovation that Didn't time. Did you hear them in a pub somewhere? Yeah, well, I was taken. Um, there was a guy called Keith Wesencroft who uh, was a single sales guy at EMI. And those are the days you used to literally drive around in your Ford Escort or whatever car you were given with a with a loads of singles, seven inch singles in the back of your car. And you go to stores and you sell them into stores. Good Lord. And I mean, well, this must have been well, I'll tell you, it must have been nineteen ninety. Colin Greenwood, who's the bass player of Redhead, was the singles buyer at HMV Oxford, and uh, he said to Keith, "Oh, isn't it Johnny Greenwood?" No, Colin is the bass player. John's oh, the guitar player. Oh, guitar player. He's just done the. Sorry to interrupt, but he's just done brilliant music for Phantom Thread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Carry go, go on, Colin. And um, and uh, are they related? Colin? They're brothers. Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. And uh, <laughs> so he gave, um, and they were called on Friday. The band at the time because it's brilliant because they rehearsed on a Friday, <laughs> and he gave a gave a cassette to Keith who then 
who Keith, who had aspirations to be an A and R guy, and brought it to me. In fact, Keith used to stalk me if it turned out that he'd just turn up at gigs where I'm. I hope you gave him a job. He damn well did. In fact, did very well. But uh, you know, I, I heard it. I thought God, there's something really quite special about this, and I slept down to the Jericho Tavern in Oxford, which is a legendary gig, but it's a it's a room above a pub basically, and there were a handful of people there. I mean, you, no more than twenty in the room. And what you, what I saw there is not massively dissimilar to what you see now. I mean, Tom York's voice was spectacular. Mm. And, and the songs, oh my goodness. But they're also doing stuff that, and they, they were playing songs, there were songs like Stop Whispering, which they still play every so often. Now. You know, there were still songs they were playing then, which is still kind of in the, the, the radio hit canon now. But I mean, funny, and also they were deeply unfashionable at the time. So it wasn't a question, we were sort of looking around, it wasn't like there was a feeding frenzy mm. for Radiohead, which was great. So we did the deal pretty quickly. No competition, there wasn't... I think it was a small amount of competition, but it wasn't like an absolute bun fight. I mean, you know, I've got... One of the things I've learned over the years of the business is when there is a bun fight, when you get everybody slamming, don't have to sign this out, it doesn't work. In fact, that's the great thing about the business is the biggest artists in the world are invariably the ones who have been kind of universally ignored and then one person's picked it up. I mean, Ed Sheeran is the classic example of that. He got passed by everybody. Really? In fact, he got dropped by Ireland. Not under my watch, I happen to say, but I mean, it, it just happens. So just never give up, keep going. Well, it's just because I think it's all those things. It's, you know, it's the, it's the anomalies that kind of really, you know, make, that really sort of touch people eventually. It's have not, you ever passed on anyone? Famously Never. Missed, no, yeah. missed a good one. You have. Yeah. yeah. You, who, who did you pass on? I think I passed on Seal. Actually. Really? Mm, I passed on Seal. Yeah, not because I didn't recognise he was a, he was a oh. great singer, but it was all like, no, oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, he was, he was the yeah, see, he's just singing the top line of the Damsky track, and it's a, you know, I mean, I mean, it was a mistake, clearly. Um, but, but it didn't I, haunt you. No, because I also think you know, the the brilliance of Seal was that he teamed up with Trevor Horn, who's, you know, a genius in his own right. And I think the chemistry that those two have made together was incredible. I think if we'd done Seal, we'd have probably teamed it up with Trevor's brother. And it wouldn't <laughs> have been the same thing at all. Now, you also signed Amy Winehouse. <laughs> and do you, is it, I mean, clearly she was troubled. I'm not saying do you bear any responsibility for her demise, but I know that... She, you, you did try to help her. I actually know that. Mm. Um, do you, is it true to say that in some way, as a record label executive, you're almost a social worker trying to help them through their personal problems if they have them? Did you feel responsibility? I don't mean just towards her, but if you see an artist who is struggling on a personal level, yeah, I think you have a responsibility as a human being, not as, as an executive. I mean, if you want to be really sort of cold about it, it's an asset of the company and you want to protect that asset. Yeah. I think with her, I mean, it, and it's been so documented, you know, by many people, but I think it, you know, it, we were all guilty of sort of putting into a position where she wasn't naturally comfortable and we were all trying to help her. It was a very, it was the most bizarre set of circumstances because... Um, she was incredibly vulnerable, but never came across that way. She's like feisty, hard ass. You know, I always thought with uh, with her, she had a funny relationship with men, particularly mm. or men perceived to be an authority. You know, which when you see the That's brilliant documentary, yeah, which you, you're you, you, get, you kind of get all that uh, all that history from her. But the reality is, is what she really wanted. All she wanted to do is she loved singing. She she it was the most pure emotion for her. It was nothing. She had no interest in commercial success 
whatsoever. In fact, I don't think I ever met an artist who was so couldn't care less what it sold, didn't care what the chart position was. I mean, never bothered about it at all. You know, her thing was, listen, I want to be a jazz singer and I want to be a Jewish mama in North London with my brilliant kids mm-hmm. making chicken soup. That's what she wanted to do. And, uh, right. and this whole thing... Were you thing, surprised when she died? I was because, I, I mean, if it had happened two or three years earlier, not at all, because when I was running Ireland, uh, you know, it's almost like the call you're expecting <clears> to happen yeah. at any moment, particularly at the when it became so public and it really is the height of its uh, the height of her her problems you know i said this to somebody the other day when we were talking about it funny because i i knew her doctor um it, you know, there was so much conflicting advice about what's the right thing for her and you'd see people go you know she has to stop everything take everything away from her take all the live stuff take everything away from me she's got to be rock bottom and then finally right. we'll be able to do something and then you'd see other people go, no, don't do that. Because if you don't give them something to look forward to, if you don't give them events, so like she's got to be get herself ready for something in a month's time, it will be incredibly yeah. destructive. So we're kind of going, oh, what's, what's the right process? I mean, in the end, you know, what was incredibly sad about it was actually that she'd largely, you know, she got over a, I mean, she, yeah, I don't think anybody gets over the addiction, but she wasn't using... Uh, uh, class A drugs, uh, certainly not in the way she was when she was with Blake. And it was, you know, largely her life was kind of getting back on right. track, is what most people thought. It was uh, so just very sad. But I mean, there's something, there's something very strange about that whole, you know, 27 phenomenon they talk about in, in pop music, you know, right. in terms of, you know, she's, she's an icon and she'll remain an icon. Who's the greatest? raw natural talent you've ever witnessed music. I think it's her yeah. I think it's her because I you know where you get that phrase music pours out of somebody and she wrote as well oh yeah she sang like that and she wrote well you say I mean I was privileged enough to be in the studio with her quite quite a few times actually and you know she wasn't someone who would over prepare to be absolutely honest <laughs> Um, and, but I think that, that a lot of recorded music benefits from that. If you can, it's that kind of immediate spark of creativity. And if you over-prepare and demo it and demo it to death, you kind of lose that when you're actually trying to make the moment. But she had a great knack of just capturing the moment. And that's, I think that's pure talent. If you listen to a song like um, Love is a Losing Game, which I think lyrically is one of the finest yeah. lyrics. I mean, it could have been written by Cole Porter through to, I mean, I, mean, I think uh, Don Black, who... I know very friendly with his son was saying it's one of the finest lyrics of you know for it to be written by a, a 22 year old um is it quite an extraordinary thing but that was written in 20 minutes largely it's right. just i mean just a phenomenal a phenomenal talent and i think that's the great shame about the music business really is that and i was going to say this earlier because it is a business you know some said well it's great you know you, you know you're lucky enough and it is luck to stumble over a radio and then stumble over Amy Winehouse. And there was those of other people involved in that process. But if you try to run a business basically based on tripping over genius, you'd be out of business mm. because there's just not enough of them. There's reality. Yeah. So most of the business is you try and find good and you just hope it's good enough. And you know, if you're lucky, you'll have a moment and it will go and then it will disappear. But then, you know, very, very, very rarely and occasionally you come across a radio head whose, you know, 20 plus year career is a testimony to how fucking good they are. Yeah. As well as, you know, Amy, Amy's music will go on and on and on and on. It's still. Yes, it will. Yes. 
Yes, absolutely stunning. You're making me want to go and listen to her again. We'll, we might play it. You can sing with We only Spotify and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, streaming only really came into its own. I mean, Spotify has been around, well, not going to 10 years, but streaming in terms of anything anybody took seriously, really five years now, I okay. think. So it was just at the, it was still sort of a, uh, I think everybody could see that was the future. So the future of the business. And I, I, I'm a huge advocate for it, I think. Were you always... I, my understanding was not with you, but that the industry, the, the, all the record companies, tried to work together to stop it. Oh, there was a, there was a. I mean, we've always been. I'm talking we as the recorded industry have always been completely hopeless about sort of collectively working what's in our best interest. You know, you've always handed the keys of the business to someone else. It was MTV in the '80s. You go right, thanks. There you go. You build a huge global brand off our content, and then you know, iTunes. iTunes had 80% of the download market. One retailer. So the fear wasn't about, about streaming as, as an idea. The fear was, oh my God, so yet again, we're just going to hand over the kingdom. Then they're going to be, it's going to be Apple. In fact, so the fear was Apple. If they're going to control the entire business. Which they do. No, well, Apple, funny enough, sort of, they, they're catching up. But you know, Spotify is the, by far the market leader in streaming. Oh, really? Right now. Yeah. And it, and they, but the artists don't make, the, my understanding is the artists make, Nothing, not even a penny. No, well, that's a, you see, I think that's a myth, and I, you know, because I'm now out of the major side of the business. So, you know, I I now have a company called Twin, and we are. I looked at it as we're an angel investment fund for creative yeah. talent. So, I think artists have to look at themselves now as startup businesses, um, and the loads of revenue streams that come into an artist's pot from recorded music and publishing and live and merchandise and all those kind of things. But the hardest thing for it, so I always say with artists right now, you know, when I started in the business, you always had to sign to a major record company mm. because we owned the factories and manufactured the records and CDs and we owned the trucks and we, we had the relationships with retail. So you were screwed if you didn't have that relationship. Now you can distribute music worldwide from your front room at the touch of a button. So there's no barriers to putting of music out. The hardest thing for artists now is for anybody to give a shit, frankly. Mm. It's just a tsunami of music I think Spotify. So why are you still taking the trouble to look for new talent and invest in it? Because there's a void of investment for new talent. So, and I know this from running major labels, is that we've got, because the business was decimated from sort of 2000 Napster onwards, yeah. we became very risk averse about investing in brand new talent. So you'd wait for that talent to develop something on their own. You'd wait to see social media numbers grow and you'd wait to see something happen and you'd just go and put the money down. So it was like checkbook A&R. And you'd still get it wrong, frankly, more than you got it right. When I started in the business, because there was no social media, you basically made a decision based on your instincts mm. and whether you liked it or was it special. Yeah. And now you're looking at, I mean, it's, it's a sweeping statement, but by and large, you're looking at data to support your investment decision which is not a stupid idea 
but what that does, uh, what that tends to, uh, to, to involve is that very early stage artists don't have a leg up. There's nobody there to provide those kind of mentorship early. And it's, it's just small amounts of investment and just helping them get a foot on the ladder. Have you found people to invest yeah, in? Yeah, we, we have. I mean, first artist we, we invested in uh, is a Canadian girl, Canadian girl based in LA called Ali X. Uh, How do you spell that? A? A-double-L-I-E mm-hmm. and X as in X. Mm. And um, and she's a really special artist. I mean, she's a very talented songwriter and a successful songwriter now in her own right. So she she co-wrote a lot of Choice of Vans last album. And she's co-released with current single. very very strong uh, aesthetic as well and you know a funny I met her just before I left Sony and she had one song mm. at the time but it started to create a stir but you know inexperienced management and yeah etc 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 et et and I was still sort of when I came out of Sony I had this idea that's what I was going to do I wanted to create this fund and uh, we got in contact and um, I think she was originally talking about management. I went, no, no, I don't want to manage, you know, because I just had visions of, you know, doing laundry for people. <laughs> and um, I said, no, but I'll invest in you on this basis. And she's like, oh, I, I, you know, I'm not sure I understand that. And we took a long time to get over the, you know, we had lawyers involved going, well, I, you know, I'm not sure if that works, but um, actually it does. And funnily enough, now I think the model that we've got, which is we put C capital in, we take an equity position in your business, and then our equity. So swings. you can take money from the merchandising. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. So everything. we have, we have generally our strategy when we get involved with new artists is we all say, right, okay, we're going to make a guaranteed investment in your career. We're building a plan. You know, which will be an eighteen-month to two-year plan to take you to market. And and that, is that not get as many Twitter followers as you possibly can? Well, no, but it's a combination of that. That's part of it. But it's I look at you know what's the if I, if I look at what is the one metric which is cast iron. You can't well you can you know finesse it, but not really. It's ticket sales. So ah, you know, if I, it's very easy to follow someone, and it's very easy to hit like and all those. I mean, it takes zero effort. And in fact, and obviously you know, there's loads of ways you can finesse that through bots or whatever. Mm. But it's very hard for someone to get off their ass, buy a ticket, and go to a gig. And I look at that is the number one way of going right. Okay, something's happening here. So we try and work on the basis that yes, you know, streaming is massively important for us. Growing that obviously combined with social media, and you look at streaming and social media, and you look at that data across two of them, saying okay, where are the hotspots generating, and then you try and you know localize that with live performances and appearances. And I'll give you an example of Ali, and I always use this when I talk to artists: is you know don't assume your audience is on your doorstep because you'll be surprised where you'll find there's an appetite for your music. 
And in Ali's case, I mean, she already had pockets of support in the US and Canada, but the market that massively over-indexed was Brazil. And, uh, you know, we always laughed about it in the office. There's always somebody online going, come to Brazil. And you go, it's probably the same guy really trying to destroy the music <laughs> business by getting all to send all these acts to Brazil as one person there. But it was like, it was too much, it was too much social media activity. You looked at streaming activity in Brazil. You go, well, this is something real here. And then we have a network of people uh, sort of in various markets saying, right, okay, this is ready for you to get into the market now and just start talking to local promoters and media and that resulted in Ali going down to uh, to Brazil, and she played to the first gig she ever played there. She played to seven hundred fifty people, sold oh. out. Um, she's going down there again in a few months' time. It'll be you know fifteen hundred to two thousand a night, and it's. Do you, does your company get involved in organising the tour? Yeah, yeah. Which we, I mean, we work with agents. You know, she has she's signed to uh, William Morris and Deborah. So, what's the best that she can hope for then? Well, I, look, I, we always say that you know she's got. She has a sustainable living as an artist without having to sell her rights. Uh, okay. And it depends what you want as an artist. I mean, you know, virtually every artist I've ever worked with never come into the business because I just want to be famous. They just want to do this. That's what they do yeah. for the rest of their lives. And they want to be able to pay rent and eat effectively and not have to struggle. So for her, so I think that's our base case. You know, can you, can you support yourself, have a decent life by being an artist? And the short answer is yes, she's doing that already. Now, how far you want to take that goes to right okay you know we look at it is right when you've got enough market leverage and i mean that by you've got enough followers you've got enough live activity you can then have conversations with universal sony or warners in markets and in individual markets but you're in control of that conversation so it's not less than right, i'm going to sell you my rights for time immemorial if you want to be in business with me this is the cost of being in business with me and these are the terms i'll do it under so it's just giving control to the artists and and empowering them so the a key thing with artists then is can you perform live do you think to longevity and yeah i think that's uh yes i think um i think every artist has to i don't think it's i don't think it's something that you know i i don't put a huge amount of store of someone who's brand new artist they don't have to sort of you know blow me away live initially because i think it's something you actually can get better at and learn right and obviously it's that wonderful thing is you know when an artist starts you know, when their music starts becoming more familiar and you see the way the audience reacts to it they just become better live artists i mean i do think you know i mean i do think it's important but it's uh i wouldn't not sign someone on the basis that they weren't quite match fit yet to mm. put out live uh, because i think you can develop them. what so what advice would you give to young artists out there bands singers songwriters the advice right now is is you know, find any way just to put your music out there whatever whether it's soundcloud whether it's on youtube youtube i think is very powerful for younger artists as well because that's where actually funnily enough much as we were very close with spotify and apple and co youtube as a discovery platform certainly for kids is still in our experience the most important and who do you listen to for pleasure oh god um blimey I've got such sort of varied taste because I get so wrapped up in the stuff we're working with. I tend to listen to that mostly. Right. But, um, you know, the stuff I, I, I go back to the old favourites, which I'm still a sort of a bit of old sort of trip hop from Massive Attack and Porter's mm. Head and stuff like I still love those. I'm, I mean, I'm a massive Radiohead fan. I still this and that. But I also, I love Frank Ocean. Uh, I like some of The Weeknd a lot. I mean, I think Calvin Harris's current record is a great record. Um, so it's pretty varied, really. I'm a pop guy, though. The older I get, I get more pop. I get more mainstream. Well, you've got um, young twins now, 12-year-old twins, so that they must impact you. 
Yeah, well, no, but anything that I listen to, they think is rubbish. Yeah, of course they do. Yeah, that's just just the rule. And what about if they came to you and said, Dad, I want to be a musician? I said, don't be so ridiculous. (laughs) Get a proper job. Um, No, I'd be thrilled. Actually, it's it's funny. I I think it's a familiar story with most parents that, that I really want my kids you know, to love music and, and appreciate it. And they do. And my daughter particularly is started to play the piano entirely off her own back. Um, and of course, and I go and say, let me just show you something. She doesn't get out immediately. <laughs> and, uh, but I love the fact she sits there and she works stuff out and she's quite passionate about it. And what advice would you give to parents? Because I do think it's important. And I say that neither of my, actually my son was musical. Um, do you, should they be encouraged, forced to learn a musical instrument? I don't think you should ever force, but I think you should strongly encourage, because there's loads of evidence. I mean, I, I, uh, I've, I actually find people feel quite passionate about this. How sort of it's been sort of relegated to a kind of, you know, arts and crafts lesson now in schools. Music is not a compulsory mm-hmm. subject in virtually every school, and you know, you look at the correlation between music lessons and certainly instrument lessons and abilities in maths and in English is just a it's a very good practice to improve your brain functionality right. and it's it's it, you know I look at the model of a country like Sweden Sweden is you know the Swedes do most things right frankly but you know music education is fantastic in Sweden I think every child is encouraged to learn an instrument it's uh, it, it's it's part of the curriculum in schools and you know funny enough, i think the result is is why sweden massively over indexed considering the size of the population to its to its contribution to popular music really you know, the world's biggest songwriters are swedish at the moment mm. and have been for some time spotify sweden was you know spotify was created in sweden i didn't know well, Sweden got decimated. I mean, really, really properly decimated by piracy. So the Pirate Bay, I think, was based in Sweden. So it was literally their market collapsed by some, you know, 80%. And so Daniel Eck and co quite rightly came out and said, well, wait, at the moment, people are just nicking this. So why don't we find a, a platform where it's not even worth nicking? It's <laughs> free, effectively. It's just a better way of doing it. And it, it transformed the business there. So where it's, it came back to growth. But outside of that... I just think the, the importance that, that Swedes and Scandinavians in general put on education, music education in schools, it just shows in terms of the output they have in, you know, maybe that's not important for Theresa May's government that we have to develop the next Max Martin out of the UK. <laughs> She's got other things on her mind, I think, at the moment. But yeah, I do feel, I think it's a great, I think it's a great shame that it's, uh, you know, it's not given the kind of level of, of importance and focus that I think it should. So you would agree with Nietzsche, the philosopher, that without music, life is a mistake. I would agree with that, actually. I think it's it's uh, I, I, without sounding melodramatic about it. I think it's it's oxygen in a lot of respect. I think we've covered everything. I think we've just about covered everything. Thank you so much for chatting with me. It's lovely to talk to you. We simply must applaud them. The chat podcast with Claire Fordham. There's so much wisdom there from Nick Gapfield. Please share this episode with everyone you know who either loves music, is a musician or wants to be one. And leave us a kind review on iTunes. Now then, dear listener, on the next episode of The Chat with Claire Fordham, my guest is best-selling author and spiritual leader Marianne Williamson. I agree, it's quite a coup to get her. Until next time, thanks for listening. Keep calm and chat on. We simply must applaud them The Chat Podcast with Claire Borden Keep calm and chat on
with Claire Fordham is an M Squared production.